Bible or some device that you'll be looking um, at the scriptures with us this morning. We're in Luke chapter 22, nearing the end of our time in Luke, just a little bit left. Um, appreciate uh, Dan and Danny um, preaching the last couple weeks. Um, I, I don't take for granted um, the opportunity to, to get to be here and do this, um, and really did uh, miss being here uh, with you guys. And so, as we have been in the last couple chapters of Luke, really what we've been seeing is we're in, we're in Holy Week, right? We've had the triumphal entry, um, we've had interactions in the temple, and we're working our way um, towards a, a trial, we're working our way towards crucifixion. Um, and, and so Dan last week had um, the Lord's Supper instituted as the disciples and Jesus um, celebrated the Passover where they're warned that one of them is going to betray Jesus, right? There's a lot going on. And so if you'll pick up with me in verse 31 of Luke chapter 22. Jesus is speaking and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. And so he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It's enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So we have here in Luke 22, in this section of Scripture, just a heavy, weighty passage, right? With warnings, with difficulty, with betrayal. And so as we begin in verse 
31. We have, right, they're still at the table. They're celebrating um, the, right, the Passover together. And, and Jesus looks at the disciples. And there in verse 31, when he says, Behold, Satan has demanded to have you. That should be y'all, right? It, it's plural. It's a plural you. And he's talking to the disciples. He says, Satan has demanded to have y'all. Like he wants y'all. But then he, he highlights and focuses on Peter specifically, right? That is Peter as the leader, right? The idea that if, if you strike the, the, sh- the shepherd, the sheep scatter, right? If you strike the leader, the others will, will lose heart and fall away. And so we, listen, we, we experienced a little bit of this even the last couple of weeks in Ireland. Um, Ireland is a, a very unbelieving place. Right now it is the least evangelized English-speaking nation in the world. 0.5% Christian. And, and so the work is, is, is pioneer work, right? It's, it's starting with no believers. And so right now, um, the church that we're partners with, the church that I got to preach at last week and that Carmen and I and the family were with for a couple weeks, there, you know, there's, there's 20 of them, 25 of them. And so if you were to strike Johnny, their pastor right now, and, and get him to, to walk away from Jesus or to leave the faith, you can imagine the devastating impact that that would have. Right? And so what's happening right now with, with the disciples are there are very few believers at this time in history. And Jesus is about to be removed from the scene. And so he's saying, y'all are about to be tempted and struck and Peter, specifically you, that if the devil can get y'all to scatter and to lose heart and to turn away from me, right? Like the, the devil will believe that he's going to win this. Like this is war. And you have an enemy coming after you, wanting to sift you. And this language of sifting is violence, right? When you're, when you're sifting wheat, you're separating the, the good from the bad, right? And, and there's, it's left in pieces. And so he's saying... The devil wants to violently shake you, right? To remove you, to bring ruin, and to leave you in pieces. Peter, disciples, you have a real enemy who's looking to destroy you. Like, it is a deep warning here. But he already is encouraging Peter. We're going to see that Peter is going to have some um, pride here, some arrogance, a little bit of lack of self-awareness, and he's going to say, hey, Jesus... I'm good. I got you. Right? I'll go to prison for you. He will, eventually. I'll die for you. He will, eventually. Jesus says, no. Tonight, you're going to say you don't know me. You're going to deny me three times. Right now, there's bravado, there's boldness, there's courage, but you're going to deny me. And this, right, you can imagine Peter sitting there going, ah, I'm good. I've got it. I'm not going to do it. And that Jesus already is ministering to him. Look at what he says. Verse 32. But I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you've turned again, right? when you've repented, when you've come back, like he's just telling him, you're going to. You're going to fail, but you're going to come back. Strengthen your brothers. I think we can quickly move past verse 32. That, that God here is saying, Peter, I see your failure. You're going to deny that you even know me. But you're not a lost cause. 
There is hope for you. There is forgiveness for you. There is restoration for you. There's a role for you when you return. That your job is going to be to care for your brothers, to strengthen your brothers. You're going to fail, but it's temporary. It's not ultimate. Right? An ultimate failure here would be to deny Jesus, to walk away from Him, and, and renounce all of it. Right? It, it would be a loss of belief, of trust, of dependence. What we're going to see here in, in Peter is a failure of nerve. Right? His fear is going to get the best of him temporarily, not permanently. So he's saying, you're going to repent, and you're going to come back, and I'm going to use you. Like What a kind and gracious God. That Jesus is already saying, yeah, Peter, I'm done with you. Because you can't stand with me. But that he's, he's, he is pouring out grace and restoration. And so, for Peter and for us, right now, when we have these moments when we fail, when we turn away, when we have a failure of nerve, when we temporarily kind of want to walk away from the Lord, that we would see that we can grow a deeper, better faithfulness and rootedness in Him when we see the kindness in which He leads us to repentance, the mercy and the forgiveness and the restoration that He offers, that it would grow a deeper love and humility and dependence and not pride. Right? Peter's pride is going to be washed away when he finds that he, on his own, is going to fail, that he needs to be dependent upon the Spirit and upon Jesus. That there's an opportunity here for him to grow in vulnerability. Right, that, that, that folks, we, we serve one another better when we're able to say, here's where I have struggled, here's where I have failed, here's where I have not met the mark, and here's with kindness and with persistence and with grace and with reconciliation and with restoration, Jesus has met me. And He's not done with me. He's going to complete the work that He started in me, even with marks, right? even with scars, even with failure in my past, I'm not done. What well, one of us this morning doesn't have something that we wish we could remove from our history? Many things. Peter, you will imagine, will lay in bed in the future going, I denied Jesus. Like, I saw Him in His transfigured form, right, on the Mount of Transfiguration. I knew who He was, and I was like, I, I don't know Him. That he would grieve this. And yet Jesus here is already restoring and ministering to him. Church, it is okay to not be okay. We say this because we mean this. But we don't stay there. We believe that the Lord continues to grow us, to deepen us, to shape us from one degree of glory to the next, to transform us. And it is okay to be vulnerable, to pour out your heart because God sees you and He cares for you and He is working out His grace, His mercy, and His kindness in you even this morning. Even with the thing that has now popped into your mind that you hate and you wish it wasn't there right now, God sees you. He cares you. He cares for you and He is ministering to you. He gets the final word, not those moments of failure. And so we see Peter beginning to get it a little bit of that he gets, hey, Jesus, prison, death, that, uh, like you're suffering. We're beginning to get it where the disciples haven't. But we see just pride and confidence and a lack of self-awareness even as he is being warned. And so Jesus goes on and he tells them, he says in verse 35, listen, when I sent you out, when he's talking about the disciples, all of them here, 
and I sent you out with no money bag, no knapsacks, no sandals. Right? We saw this in chapter 9 and chapter 10 when he sent out the 12, and then subsequently when he sent out the 70. He told them, hey, go as you are. Go into homes you'll be taken care of. And he says, did you lack anything? He said, no, we, we didn't lack anything. We had what we needed. And now he changes the script on them. And he says, so now let the one who has a money bag take it. If you have a knapsack, take, take it. Um, he's talking about selling things, making sure you're prepared. Why the change from chapter 9 and chapter 10 now to chapter 22? Because when he sent them out in chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus was popular. Right? People were, were anxious to hear. Things were going well. And so people were glad to take care of them. And he was teaching them dependence, but also the, the overall mood of the country was, was kind of pro-Jesus outside of the leadership. What we're going to find now, they're going to kill Jesus. And his servants are not going to be better off than he is. There's going to now be persecution and hatred and difficulty and beatings and imprisonments and their own death. And so he's saying now you need to go prepared. You need to take with you what you need and not expect that people are going to be as hospitable and as generous as they once were. Ultimately, as the gospel spreads, the church will begin to play that role. But he's saying don't expect it from the world any longer. Right? Don't expect it from them. And so he is telling them, I want you to be prepared and ready. And so, we have an interesting phrase here. Did you notice he says um, in verse 36, And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Like this is like a West Texas verse if there was ever a West Texas verse. Right? Then we're thinking, that's right. We're going to get strapped, right? We're going we're to carry. This is my concealed license verse. Um, I hate to disappoint you. That is not what this verse is talking about. Okay? What Jesus is, is a euphemism here for be prepared. Right? The idea of having a sword, having your stuff ready and with you was the idea that you're ready for whatever comes. You are prepared here. Okay? So think about the way that we might still say something like this. Right in the midst of about to go into a, a kind of a hairy situation, you say, you better buckle up. And you might not even be in a vehicle, right? You, there, people don't turn around looking for their belt buckle at that point or their, like their seat belt or their belt buckle, right? Better buckle up just means be prepared, get ready. When you tell someone to gird their loins, which we don't really say, we still understand it, we don't really say it, people don't start to like hike up, right, and tuck stuff in so they can run. Right? But they, you understand the meaning of get ready. Better hold on to your hat. Right? Better hold on to your hat. You're going, I don't have a hat. Right? What it means is we're about to get to moving. You need to be ready. You need to be prepared. And so when Jesus tells them here, hey, have a knapsack, have a sword, what he's saying is be prepared. Be prepared. Take what you need. Nothing about the life of Jesus in these previous three years would indicate that what he's saying is, hey, you're going to need a sword because we're going to kill some folks. He is saying it's readiness over revenge. It is preparedness. It is not, um, it's not taking the gospel by sword. And so he then tells them, listen, this is going to happen because what has to be fulfilled is this scripture, and he quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors. 
It's like, I'm going to be called a criminal, an enemy. It's going to happen. What is written about me is having its fulfillment. And so you can see here that they continue to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. right? And so as he's talking about, they're going to call me a transgressor. We're, we're fulfilling Isaiah 53 here. That They're looking around the room and they're like, oh, hey, Jesus, we've got two swords. Like, there's 11 of us here, but we have two swords. And he's like, it's enough. Right? He's not saying, it's enough swords. He's saying, quit talking about the swords. Right? It feels like a conversation you would have with your children. Right? Where, where you've asked them to do something, right? And then their, their minds go to the completely, they just completely misheard you, misapplied it, misunderstood it. And they come back and you're like, all right, we're going to hurry to the car now. And they go, okay, I'm going to go pack my backpack. No, you misunderstood. I said, hurry. Right? Jesus, they go, Jesus, we have two swords. He's like, enough talk about the swords. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. Enough of that. They're misunderstanding what he's asking. And so, they've had this conversation, and now they, they get up and they're leaving the room and they're headed out. And if you remember in Luke 21, it told us that Jesus was staying um, on Mount Olive every night, so he would go into the city, and then in the evenings he would go back out. And so look at verse 39. And so he came out and he went, as was his custom, right? His regular um, ex- expectation here, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Why is it important? Why is Luke noting this? Because he's saying Jesus isn't hiding. Judas is gone. He has gone to betray him. And if Jesus thought, hey, what needs to not happen is my death, he could have easily just gone somewhere else. But instead, he goes back to where everyone expects him to be. He's not, he's not um, hiding. Judas knew where he would be. So he goes, and he goes to pray. And when they come to the place, he said to them, guys, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He has already warned them earlier in this chapter, right, of what? Guys, you have an enemy, and he wants to destroy you. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. It feels like a good time to pray. And then he goes a little bit away from them to pray. And we'll look down in verse 45. After he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Right? Like they've had a they've rightfully so had a long day. They've heard Jesus is is potentially going to die. Um, they've heard that one of them is going to betray him. Hey, we have an enemy that wants to destroy us. Like they've had a lot going on. Right? They've misunderstood the sword thing. And so instead of like sitting there and praying as they've been warned and encouraged to do, an exhaustion. In, in emotional overwhelmingness, they're asleep. Right? They've, they've missed the opportunity here. And what Luke does in between the warning to pray, the encouragement to pray, and us finding them asleep, he highlights the absolute humanity of Jesus. Right? That Jesus goes and he withdrew from them just a little bit and he knelt down. The standard procedure to pray would have been to stand. Kneeling, right, shows. Some, some discomfort, some, some pain, some emotion here. He knelt down and he prayed saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Right? What cup is he talking about? It's a cup of wrath. He knows that what is coming for him in hours is death. It's not just 
death. It is separation from the Father. It's not just death and separation. It is Him being judged and having the wrath, the anger of God towards sin poured out upon Him. It is Him being forsaken. It is Him being left alone. It is Him tasting death and judgment. Hebrews will say it this way in verse 9 of chapter 2. But we see Him, meaning Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Church, what is happening here, the cup that He's referring to, and all throughout the Old Testament, in Habakkuk, and in Zechariah, and Isaiah, and Psalms, and Lamentations, and Ezekiel, and all these passages, the cup was the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And so he's saying, God, is there a way outside of this cup being poured out on me? Because what we deserve is to be separated from God forever. What we deserve is the wrath, the anger, the judgment of God. We deserve to be forsaken because we have sinned and rebelled gladly against a holy and righteous God. And yet here is Jesus praying, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove it. And then immediately, nevertheless, it's not my will, but it's yours. I want that done. And that God is ministering to him from an angel in verse 43. And Luke shows us again his agony in 44. He prayed earnestly in agony. And it says it like his sweat is like clumping up like an athlete, right? Like it's, and it's, it's pouring off of him like he's bleeding. And he gets up and he finds them asleep. He's, he's alone here. And he knows what awaits him. And we see his humanity. And while he's talking to them, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Right? Sometimes I think we... we Again, think of the humanity of Jesus as He's watching one that He has spent three years with in close proximity, right? Probably with a smirk on His face. He's been paid, right? He thinks He's winning. He thinks He's doing the right thing. And He's leading a crowd that's in control. And He's walking up to Jesus, right? And you can imagine it's, it's probably bold. And He's going to kiss Him, right? To make sure they know in the dark the right one. Like what hypocrisy, right? That it looks like a kiss of affection, but it's an it's a, an act of betrayal, right? It's 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 what hypocrisy is when we look like one thing and we mean something else by it. And Judas comes to betray him. Luke doesn't tell us if he actually gets to kiss him, right? Because he says Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Like Judas, I know what you're doing. Like if, you, if you don't think I know, I know I'm not a fool. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Right? You can imagine, right? Like, okay, that's why he wanted us to have two swords. Okay. Like they're ready, and there's like some, there's, there is some courage here because they're outnumbered and they're outgunned. And so there's some boldness of like, hey, Jesus, we will fight to the death for you. 
but they have utterly misunderstood the sword. And so one of them reaches out, right, and, he, and it says he slices off an ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus in verse 51, no more of this. Like, this isn't the point. This isn't the point. It's like, right, like if, if he wanted to win, it's just he just speaks and he wins. Right? This isn't the point. And then he bends down and picks up the ear, right? And he puts it on the head and heals it. And, and so I just, even in that moment, it's hard for me to imagine the crowd being like, do we have the right guy? Right? Like, he just put the dude's ear back on, and we're going to arrest him. What are we doing? And yet, they're there because of their hatred that he is upsetting the status quo. He is changing the circumstances and the situation, and so they don't want it any longer. And so Jesus looks at the crowd, to the chief priests, the officers of the temple, the elders. Right, what did we see in chapter 20 was all these interactions with these different groups. And so he tells them, hey, you've come out against me like I'm a robber. Right, like that I'm some like vigilante, violent person that you needed to sneak up on and catch. We've been in the temple talking, and I've been unarmed. But you didn't, you didn't get me there. Like he's showing them the shame of them living in the darkness and how ugly this is. He says, you've come out with clubs and with swords. When Verse 53, when I was with you day after day in the temple, and you didn't lay hands on me. Hey, but this is your hour. And it's dark. Right, Luke here, literary, is just showing us like them coming in the cover of darkness is, is evil, right? Because Satan right now is guiding and directing that this is violent, it's evil, and it's the kingdom of darkness pushing against the kingdom of light. And Jesus says, okay, you have your hour. Right, you've got it for right now. And yet Jesus is still loving. He's still healing. He's still caring for his enemies even in the midst of it. He's not fleeing. He's not running. He's not crying for help. He's in control. And so I want us even just for a moment as we begin right, to, to end this section, would, would you look at Jesus? Right? Not, not in familiarity, but would you once again reminded of what He looks like in this passage? That He's in control. When everyone else, I mean, people are like wailing with swords, right? people are losing ears, like people are acting hypocritically. Jesus is the one that he looks at Peter and says, hey, you're going to deny me, but let me go ahead and minister to you. Hey, Judas, you want to betray me? I know what you're doing. Hey, crowd, let's just call it what it is. Like the, the whole time, Jesus is in control. He's not panicking. He's not fearful. He's not thwarted. He is guiding and directing. Would we not forget the cost here? And Jesus didn't have like a death wish, right? Like it, it, it is costly to him to be separated from the Father, to take the weight of sin, to be punished and to be forsaken, and to have death and wrath and separation poured out upon him. It is costly, and yet he is obedient and faithful and willing. Would we not take that for granted and presume upon it? Would we see his character that he is still loving and kind and healing and merciful and ministering and showing grace? And would we see his dependence on the Father as he turns to him in prayer, as he gives us 
an example of one, right? Going gladly, faithfully, and obediently to what the Lord has for him. And then would we be reminded this morning of this, that all of us are in open conflict with an enemy. That we have an enemy in this world as we live between the cross and the return who wants to destroy you, who wants to sift you, who hates you, who is the father of lies, who wants to steal and kill and destroy. He wants that. And so uh, with the ease and the peace that the average person in the panhandle of Texas went to sleep last night, right, grateful for rain and cool weather, peace, right, like you just went to sleep. How different that would be if you were in Ukraine or Russia this morning with war happening on your very doorstep. Right, there's a different level of like um, alertedness. What, what Jesus is telling Peter and the disciples and what he is reminding us this morning is this. We are in w- open warfare. We have an enemy. And listen, Jesus has won the victory, but right now the enemy is still looking to steal and to, to kill and to destroy and to lie and to, to lead you into failure. And so we need the Holy Spirit. We need to be dependent. We don't do this in our power. We don't do this in our pride. That's Peter earlier in this passage saying, I'll go to prison for you, Jesus. I'll die for you. And he's like, no, you'll deny me. Because he's trying to do it in his own power, in his own pride. It's, it's the misunderstanding of the disciples trying to figure out what, what my Jesus was talking about, swords, right? And they're just missing it the whole time. Because they need the Spirit. And so when the Spirit comes, He gives understanding. He points them to truth. He equips them. He empowers them. Right? And we are dependent upon the Spirit as well. Listen, Peter goes from denying Jesus three times to saying things like this. This is 1 Peter, a letter that he wrote. Blessed, this is verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Like that, His hope wasn't dead. His hope was alive. It was living. Right? He has hope and peace because Jesus has defeated our enemies. And then verse 10 of chapter 5, Peter writes this, And after you've suffered a little while, he's potentially thinking about his own imprisonment, his own denials. The God of all grace. Man, I've tasted that grace. You can imagine Peter thinking Jesus' grace even before he denied him. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, because I've seen this, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. And so to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's not writing just like lofty words. He's saying, I've experienced this and God will do it for you. And so this morning, would we be reminded that we are in open conflict, but would we also be reminded that it's not with people? Right? It is a spiritual battle against powers and principalities. And that we have a need for the Holy Spirit. We have a need for prayer. And in that a couple things as we end with this on prayer. That what we can glean and take from this is that prayer 
Jesus is expressing his need. He's encouraging the disciples to express their need. And so prayer is us saying, God, I need, and you fill in the blank. I need this. Believing that he sees you, that he cares for you, that he hears you, and that he's alive to respond to it. God, I need help in this relationship. God, I need peace in this situation. And we pour out our hearts and we're honest because He cares and we can cast our anxieties upon Him. And so prayer is not just expressing your need, it's also, right, it's, it's a desire to depend upon Him. That Jesus is saying, God, I would love for this cup to be taken, but I need You to strengthen me. Right? It, it's, here's my need, and I'm depending upon You to meet me in it, even in difficult trials and circumstances. And so it's, experience, it's um, expressing need, a desire to depend upon God, and then it's a trust of His control and His action. Listen to what Jesus said. Father, if You're willing, remove this cup. That's His need. Nevertheless, not my will but Yours. Father, I'm coming to You because I need You. Here's my need. I trust Your plan. I trust Your control. I trust Your sovereignty. And so we submit. We submit. When, when what God has for us, we obey it. And so we express our need. We, we depend upon Him. We obey Him. And then we trust His care. That He will give us the grace we need in the moment. That He will not forsake us. And that if even what we don't want to happen happens, it's for our good and Jesus will be with us. It's why the promises of Scripture begin to matter and they linger and they minister to us. And then we see the diligence that Jesus did this with. The example to follow. As the disciples aren't doing this, He is. That we don't nonchalantly depend upon Jesus. We don't nonchalantly express our need. We don't nonchalantly find ourselves in prayer. It is with intent and with discipline and with diligence that we go before God saying, I want to trust you. I want to need you. I trust your, your answer and your ministry to me. And that we need those things because we have an enemy seeking to destroy us. Listen, we, we are ending in a strange place this morning. Verse 53. With Jesus saying, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And maybe you feel some of that darkness as you think about past failures, past experiences. Maybe you're thinking about that even in your own life right now that you feel like you are in the dark. But listen, the darkness doesn't win. The darkness doesn't. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And would you be reminded where Luke starts this? This is chapter 1. The end of chapter 1, verse 77. As he's promising this child, this Christ child that's coming, he says this, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus came to take those of us, all of us, who are in darkness into the kingdom of light. Those who would trust Him, depend upon Him, follow Him, and receive that. 
So this morning, you are either still in the kingdom of darkness, needing God to transfer you into the kingdom of light, and saying the way that you do that is by following Jesus. Trusting that His, His taking of the cup was so that you didn't have to. Or you've already been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, and you're in the kingdom of light, because Jesus has done this. And so we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. And as we think of the word cup, we're going to be reminded that as we drink the cup, it's Jesus' blood that was spilt, not yours, and yours won't be, because Jesus has rescued and saved you, and your blood wouldn't have saved you anyway. And then as you take the cracker, it was His body mocked and humiliated and beaten and bruised and crucified and murdered, so that yours isn't. He was forsaken. He was separated. He took the wrath of God, and we in exchange get Him with hope and with joy and with peace and with life and with reconciliation and with restoration and with eternity and with hope. And it's a living hope because Jesus wins. And so we're going to have an opportunity to, to stand and to worship. You can sit. You can pray with folks. You can take the, 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 the Lord's Supper for those who know they're in the kingdom of light following Jesus this morning. But would we respond and see Jesus and thank Jesus once again? Let's pray. God, forgive us for presuming upon Your grace. God, forgive us for too often looking like Peter with arrogance, with pride, with a lack of self-awareness of our need. God, thank You that You meet us in our need and You forgive us and You restore us and You do it gently. So this morning, for those who need restoration, God, would You bring it? For those who need to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, would you do that? For those of us who simply need to be reminded that this is not cold, this is not dull, this is not dutiful, that we delight in our rescuer, God, would you stir that in us? And would you be pleased with our response? As we sing, as we take the cup, as we take the bread, and as we live our lives this week, that we would find ourselves depending, trusting, submitting, because you're worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.